0: If you've got your copy of God's Word with you, I would encourage you to open it to Romans chapter 6 this morning. Romans chapter 6, and our text is going to be verses 3 through 5, but during the course of the message we'll talk, of course, about the surrounding verses as well. As we continue in our series on the church and church membership, it seems appropriate to address the traditions of the Lord's Church known as ordinances. This is a label that we've assigned to the two most important activities of the church, which is baptism and the Lord's Supper. But just as a disclaimer before we start up front, I want you to know when you read the word ordinances in Scripture, it's a little bit of a strange word because generally it's being used in a sense of uh, correct traditions or instructions in Scripture. It doesn't necessarily mean exactly the way we use it today. So for example, in 1 Corinthians 11.2, the Apostle Paul uh, praises the church at uh, Corinth that they had been keeping the ordinances as I delivered them to you. But when you read that in context, he's clearly talking about more than just the baptism and baptism the Lord's Supper. So there's, in reality, many ordinances in that sense of the word. There are many traditional instructions, so I'd kicked around the idea of trying to use a different word, but I honestly can't come up with one. We've, we've used the word ordinances for so long. I just want you to be clear that when you read that in the New Testament, It's really not defined exactly the same way we do today. Here's how we define this word ordinance ordinance today. In his two-volume book, Studies on Church Truth, Davis Huckabee defines ordinance as, quote, a divinely instituted right which conveys truth through its symbolism. I'll give you that again. A divinely instituted right which conveys truth through its symbolism. And with that definition in mind, there are two ordinances upheld in the New Testament as supremely important. Those would be baptism and the Lord's Supper. The reason those two are primary is because if an ordinance is conveying truth through symbolism, both baptism and the Lord's Supper symbolically picture the gospel of Jesus Christ through his death, burial, and resurrection. There are other traditions that have been suggested as, oh, those should be church ordinances also. So, for example, the reference I gave a moment ago in 1 Corinthians 11, the context is of women wearing head coverings, but that does not picture the gospel. Some churches uphold foot washing. Remember Jesus washed his disciples' feet and told them you should do such things, but They've upheld that as an ordinance, but that also doesn't picture the gospel. There are only two ordinances which do picture the gospel of Jesus Christ. Both of them, baptism and the Lord's Supper. This morning we'll talk about baptism. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. Let's read the text, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll talk about it. Romans 6, starting at verse 3. Know ye not... That so many of us, as were baptized unto Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are thankful for the opportunity we have to be here today. We just know from the people who are here today and in talking to them, Lord, that as we have come to you in prayer, you have answered and we should always give you the glory for that. Lord, we ask that you would be with us in this assembly this morning, that we would Uh, bring worship that's acceptable to you that we would open your word and understand the truth contained in it. Most importantly, Lord, that in all things we do, it would point to the glory of your son, Jesus, as the savior of mankind. Please forgive us of our failures and give us a desire to serve you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This is a passage of scripture in Romans 6 that I discuss with everyone before I baptize them because this passage gives a simple explanation of the symbolic meaning of baptism. And I would tell you that it is extremely important in what it represents. The majority of Christianity has gone to some extreme positions on baptism. On one extreme, they would baptize infants with the idea that doing this physical ritual is actually going to have some spiritual impact. That that babies might be saved by the act of baptism. Folks, that's dangerous because it's simply not true. You'll find nowhere in the Bible that infants were baptized. The Bible does not teach that Baptism causes salvation, but Peter describes it as the answer of a good conscience toward God. On another extreme, there are those who would say, well, if it doesn't really do anything, if it's just symbolic, then why make such a big deal about it? Why go to all the trouble of actually, you know, filling a baptistry and immersing someone underwater? If it's just symbolic, why can't you just pour a little bit of water on their head, or or sprinkle a few drops on their forehead. Well, it is symbolic, but what it symbolizes is incredibly important. So important that Baptists throughout history have held to this truth in spite of the harshest persecutions. Now, Throughout history, they weren't always called Baptists, right? There have been other names in the past 2,000 years, Waldenses and Donatists and Paulicians and Petrobrusians and Novatians and Cathari, right? We've not always been called Baptists. We've been called a lot of names by the people who despise us. Most notably in history, the term Anabaptist was used, meaning literally a re-baptizer. We'll talk about that in a few minutes, but Anabaptists insisted that when a person came to faith in Jesus Christ, they ought to gladly submit to baptism by immersion as a believer under the authority of one of the Lord's churches. It's hard to imagine just how much that caused our spiritual forefathers to be hated throughout history. Roman Catholicism, for example, their their writings are full of accounts of these so-called heretics who would be tortured to death. And for the record, it wasn't just Roman Catholics which hated Anabaptists. Such great names of the Reformation like Martin Luther, John Calvin, also uh, advocated violence against Anabaptists. Actually, one of their favorite methods in dealing with Anabaptists was to take them to a river, chain them together, and push the first one in so that he would drag all the others down to drown with them. They considered it ironic that someone who insisted on baptism by immersion could be killed by immersing them. They would say of the Anabaptists, they called them dunkers, and they said, let the dunkers be dunked. The point is this, baptism is important. It is not a saving work. Being baptized does not save anyone. But the proper observance of baptism, doing it the way God designed, is worth dying for. Why is that? If it's just a symbol, why is it that it's that important? Well, in Christianity today, we have a failure to take baptism seriously, and I think it's because we have lost sight of what it is that baptism symbolizes. Up to this point in his letter, the Apostle Paul has been making an argument about living a new life in Christ. In our text this morning, I want you to understand it's not the Apostle's main intention here to just teach about baptism. In fact, the verses we're looking at are being used as an example to reinforce another argument that he's making and I don't want you to miss that. Right? He's been showing that God declares believers to be righteous without regard to anything that they do to earn righteousness. There's no list of... you you know, do's and don'ts that God's going to recognize to make you righteous. If there was, Paul said, if there was, that would be the Old Testament law. But since none of us can or have fulfilled the Old Testament law, it's really there so that we just understand we're not righteous. We have sinned against God. We are sinners. We are already unrighteous. So that it is only believing in Jesus that causes God to declare a person righteous, not any set of good things that you do. You cannot pray enough, you cannot repent enough, you cannot give enough, you cannot sacrifice enough, you cannot do enough good works that it's going to satisfy God. Because God, the Bible says, sees our actions as nothing but filthy rags, and yet, He declares sinners to be righteous when they repent of their sins and place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now having said that, Paul anticipates, as he's writing this, what some of his readers would think. It's like he predicts their questions and so he asks the questions himself just so he can answer it for them. Right. So look up at verse 1. What shall we say then? Right? What's the question we're going to have? What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul knows that some would say, well, if grace covers all sin, if it's not some action that we do that makes us righteous, if we can really just rely on God's grace and kindness without changing our actions, in fact, that will make grace even greater, right? we can just continue living a life of sin and god's grace will cover that i trust you understand that question is is absolutely an insane way to think you know yet many in the past have thought that way and some still do if uh, be a little bit of a nerd for a second a history nerd if any of you are familiar with a character in history named grigory rasputin he had his hands in to the Russian royal family back in World War I, he argued that the more we sin, the more we can repent, and thus we can get closer to God. Biblically, that is nonsense. Someone who is forgiven of their sins no longer desires to go on living in their sins. And Jesus said this he said a bad tree will not bring good fruit and a good tree won't bring bad fruit right if you've been saved by grace there will be righteous behavior that matches the righteousness of the believer the way you act on the outside is going to represent this change that's happened on the inside and so look at Paul's response to this question verse 2 God forbid how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein right the phrasing in the original language here of god forbid in verse two actually doesn't have the word god in it at all but it's the strongest words of denial available in the language it would probably be better translated literally as may it never be so or absolutely not of course not don't ever say that don't ever think that don't imagine that traveling down that line of thought While it is doubtlessly true that genuine Christians will sin, we will not embrace a lifestyle of sin. We will not wallow in it. We will not revel in it and brag about it. In fact, a genuine believer who falls into sin will and must feel grieved by it because we have new desires, a new nature. We follow a new master, the Lord Jesus. Glance back at chapter 5, the last verse of chapter 5, verse 21, and see what Paul says in regard to sin and grace. Prior to salvation, sin reigned, he says in that verse. It was the master, it was the ruler, it was the dictator of your life. But after salvation, grace reigns through righteousness. That is, the grace of God is now the ruling factor, the guiding principle of your life. It it is what directs you on your righteous path. So Paul's argument is about the behavior of a Christian. Will a Christian continue to just revel in sin? No, he says, may it never be so. Don't ever say that. Verse 2, if you're dead to sin, you won't live in it anymore. Now, that's Paul's main point, and I don't want to overshadow it by taking verses 3 through 5 out of context and acting like this is all he says. Paul's discussing here the issue of life and death, all the way from verse 1 in chapter 6 down through verse 11. Actually, in verses 1 through 11, the the apostle uses some form of the word dead or death or have died, and live, or life, or alive, if I've counted correctly, like 19 times. right? So he's, he's making this contrast between death and life. This is all a contrast about being dead to sin and alive in Jesus. The instant you start on a journey as a believer in Jesus Christ, in that very instant, Paul says... You have both died and come to life. You, the old you has been buried and the new you has risen. There is a, uh, in, in comparison to Jesus, there is a crucifixion and resurrection in your own life. You've died to your old life. You've died to sin. You live in Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. So look at verse 11, for example. Likewise, Reckon you also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Right? Consider yourself dead to sin and alive in the Son. If you, you were born into this world dead in your sins, but the moment you were born again through faith in Jesus Christ, you are dead to sin and you are alive in Jesus. So there's this great contrast. Now I want us to concentrate this morning on what he's saying in verses three through five where he reinforces that argument by saying don't you know that's what baptism is all about. Right? And he does so in a way. It shows us how important baptism is. Your death to sin and life in Jesus is connected to Christ's own death and resurrection. So look at verses three through five again. Let's read them again. Know you not. Don't you know that so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also In the likeness of his resurrection. In the passage here, Paul actually writes about two ways that the act of baptism should focus our attention. First, he says, it ought to cause us to look backward at the work of the Lord Jesus. When when Paul wrote to the church at Corinth for the first time, he included a statement about what he considered to be the gospel message. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 4, Paul gives really the the simplest definition of the elements of the gospel message. He says, For I delivered unto you, first of all, what I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scripture, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scripture. What Paul did there is essentially reduce the message of the gospel into its simplest form. To preach the good news of Jesus, it must include the story of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Those three points are vital points of the gospel. You have no good news Without the death of Jesus. You don't have the whole truth without the burial of Jesus. You have no hope at all for the future without the resurrection of Jesus. So the the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for sinners are the vital elements of the gospel story. Now, look at what Paul says about baptism in our text. I know we're going through the text several times, but look, verse 3. Know ye not? That so many of us were baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. You see the elements of the gospel there, right? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus pictured in the gospel. In verse three, we're buried into His death. In verse, or we're baptized into His death. In verse four, we're buried with Him by baptism. In verse five, we are raised to walk just like His resurrection raised Him. What's the symbolism of baptism? It's the death, burial, and resurrection of the lord jesus folks the gospel message is proclaimed through the act of baptism when we see baptism it ought to first make us think about the death burial and resurrection of jesus the perfect son of god was put to death on the cross though he did nothing wrong to deserve it do you know that jesus christ to my knowledge is the only person in history who is executed after being put on trial and declared innocent. This is how John's Gospel describes it in John 19, verses 1 through 6. This is Pilate, this is Pontius Pilate. Therefore took Jesus and scourged him. And the, pilot, the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put him on, on him a purple robe and said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they smote him with their hands. Pilate therefore went forth again and said unto them, that's the crowd, Behold, I bring him forth to you, that you may know I find no fault in him. Then came Jesus forth wearing the crown of thorns, and the purple robe and Pilate said unto them behold the man and when the chief priests, therefore and officer saw him they cried out saying crucify him crucify him and Pilate said you take him and crucify him for I find no fault in him right the self-righteous Jewish leadership had taken Jesus to Pilate to be put on trial and executed and though Jesus had answered every question Pilate asked with sincerity and in calmness, without offense. Pilate, in hopes of pleasing the Jewish leaders, has Jesus severely beaten. They scourged him, they took and they, they used a, a, a whip to rip open wounds on his back. Many times people would die from this kind of beating. Not only that, but they mock him by putting on a a royal robe like he's king. And they beat a crown of of long thorns into his head. And then Pilate brings Jesus back out to the crowd and says, Behold the man. In other words, look at him. I've asked him hard questions. I've, I've tried to find a way to accuse him and find him guilty. All I can tell you is I can't tell that this man's ever done anything wrong. Still, Pilate had him almost beaten to death. He's mocked shamefully, he's tortured, he's beaten mercilessly. And Pilate says, let that be enough. Look at him. This is enough punishment. But it isn't enough. They demanded that he be crucified. So Pilate, even though he says, you take him and crucify him, I don't find any fault in him. Actually, the previous chapter, Pilate even says, I find no fault in him At all. Not just that Jesus hadn't done anything wrong that day in regard to their accusations. But as best Pilate could tell, he has never done anything wrong. Jesus is perfect and never sinned. The only reason he allowed himself to be punished as if he were a sinner was so that he could die in the place of sinners. So that through faith in Jesus, we can know that the price of our sin was paid for on the cross when he was crucified. And after he died on the cross and was taken out and buried, he later rose again. John 19 goes on to tell the story of Joseph of Arimathea and... Nicodemus who pleaded for the body of Jesus, they received permission from Pilate to take him down from the cross, they took his body, they buried it in a tomb that had been bought and intended for Joseph's own family. They used it because it was close by, it was available, It 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 was near that place of execution and they were in a hurry because the Passover day was approaching. What a blessing for Joseph and Nicodemus to be able to bury the body of Jesus. Undoubtedly, they did not see it as a blessing at the time. But within a few days, they would have seen it differently. After the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, they would have had some even added confidence because Joseph and Nicodemus would say, we know he rose from that tomb. The reason we know he rose from the tomb is we were the ones who put him in that tomb. And we did a good job when we did it. John tells the story in the next chapter, John 20, that three days after the burial of Jesus, the women came to the tomb and saw that it was empty. They run back and they tell Peter and John who run to the tomb and they look inside and the tomb's empty. They see the grave clothes there, but there's there's no Jesus there. And they begin to understand what was happening. And Jesus showed himself alive to Mary Magdalene in the cemetery. He he walked with two disciples down the road to Emmaus. He showed himself alive to all of his disciples with the exception of Thomas who wasn't there. And then when he returns a week later and Thomas was there, Thomas had told the others that, that he wouldn't believe the story they told unless he saw the the wounds in the hands and feet of Jesus and could feel the wound in his side from the spears. And Jesus showed himself to Thomas and said, go ahead and feel the wounds, Thomas. It's me. He ate with them. He walked with them. He taught them. Luke says he showed himself to them with many infallible proofs, undeniable evidence. And since Jesus defeated death and has risen to live forever, He is uniquely qualified to promise everlasting life to anyone who believes. He's defeated death. Life is his to give. So if you repent of your sin and trust in Jesus, you will have everlasting life. Now folks, that's the story of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Paul says, that's the gospel message. And when a new believer is baptized, they get into the water and they go under the water and they're brought up out of the water. And all of that is to tell a story, is to tell the story of the gospel. Now, what are you going to do with baptism that's not going to change that story? Baptism is for a believer. Because it has to be someone who has identified themselves with Jesus and His work and His death, burial, and resurrection. It has to be by immersion. It has to be by submerging someone under the water because our Savior was buried in that tomb. You don't sprinkle a little bit of dirt on someone's forehead and say, I've buried them. That's why our Baptist forefathers were willing to die rather than alter the word of God in this symbolic ordinance because, yes, it is symbolic, but it is symbolic of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's that message that they so loved that was so dear to them that facing the most horrific death, they would cling to that truth and praise God for what it was He had done in their life. That also shows us I think how important it is to be baptized. Listen, if Jesus died for you and was buried and raised again and lives for you, he expects you to identify yourself with him publicly. That's done through the process of baptism. It is an outward display for people to see the change that has happened on the inside. Part of the great commission, the great command of Jesus is for believers to be baptized. He told his disciples to go out and preach the gospel to everyone. Baptize the believers in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Baptism does not save anyone, but anyone who is saved, anyone who hears the gospel of Jesus and repents of their sin and believes in him ought to willingly be baptized as a sign of being his disciple. And refusing obedience to that command, it is, you know, it is disappointing to your Savior. If you believe Jesus, if you love Jesus, obey Jesus. So baptism ought to cause us to look back in time at the work of Christ on our behalf. But it also ought to cause us to look forward as well because not only does baptism symbolize the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, it also symbolizes the death, burial, and resurrection that's happened in us. Again, look at the text, verses 3 and 4. Know ye not that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ, we're baptized into his death. Therefore we... (laughs) are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so also we should walk in newness of life. Right? Paul says we are baptized into his death in verse 3. We're, we're buried with him in verse 4. Just like Jesus rose again, we should come out of the baptismal waters as a constant reminder that I've been risen to a new life with Christ. That's a picture of not just the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but there is a kind of death, burial, and resurrection that's happened in us. Salvation through Jesus Christ and the baptism that follows should be a reminder to us that we've died to our old selves That it's been buried in the water and that we have fully embraced our identity as a new life going forward in Jesus Christ. Now, does that mean baptism has saved us? Of course not. Only faith in Jesus saves sinners. But baptism is an outward expression of inward change. Not only do we see ourselves differently, those who see or know that we've been baptized also have been given a message that we identify ourselves with Jesus. I'm not the old me anymore. The old me just got put away, right? Jesus has made me something different. This is why Paul wrote to the church at Corinth and said, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation, the old things are passed away. All things have become new. Or he says here in verse 3, we, are, we are, were baptized into his death. We've been baptized into the death of Jesus. What's Paul mean by that? We've been baptized into Jesus' death. I, I like the way Paul says it should be obvious to us. He says at the beginning of verse 3, know ye not? Or the way we would say that today is like, don't you know? If you were baptized into Jesus, you were baptized into his death. Something happens in us similar to the death of Christ. So here's what this means. Just like Jesus died on the cross, when you come to faith in Jesus, you should be dead to your old sinful self. After all, Jesus died for those sins, right? The price has been paid. The Death has taken place. Those sins should be dead to you. If Jesus took my sin unto himself, then I shouldn't live as if I'm still carrying those things around. And so Paul goes on to say in verses 6-7, knowing this, that our old man, right? The old us is crucified with him that the body of sin might be destroyed. That henceforth or from now on we should not... Serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. I know we're not going to be perfect, and Paul knows we're not going to be perfect, but we ought not have sin as the focus of our lives anymore. We've become servants of Jesus. We should no longer serve sin. Someone who is dead is free from sin, and they're free from all the passions of this life. Baptism is that picture of dying to your old self and being buried. At the same time, Paul says it's a symbol of a kind of new life. After all, Jesus didn't stay buried, did he? Y'all, were talking about the resurrection of your Lord and Savior. Let me try this again. Jesus didn't stay buried, did he? No. No. When I baptize someone up here, I'm not going to hold them under the water forever, right? I did once hit someone's head on the back edge of the baptistry, but I didn't drown them. At some point, when you're baptized, you come up out of the water. That's the symbol of a resurrection in us. We have a new life in our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Folks, that's a good picture. We rely on God for our new life, right? God, Paul says, raised Jesus from the dead and brought him to life. And if I'm going to be given spiritual life, am I going to bring myself back from the dead? right? Has, has any dead body ever done that? right? Laying there, decided to rub the paddles themselves, bring them back, themselves back to life? And so Paul says in verse 5, we have been planted together in the likeness of his death. We shall also, in the likeness of his resurrection, be raised in the likeness of his resurrection. Since we're planted, Paul says, I love that he uses that word. Baptism pictures planting. You aren't going to plant something by sprinkling a little dirt on it, for one thing. But since we're planted together, just like Christ's death, the purpose of planting here we are, central Illinois. We should know lots about corn and soybeans, right? The purpose of planting is what? Why do you plant in the spring? See, so you can harvest in the fall, right? The purpose of planting is harvest. The purpose of planting is the expectation that new life is going to spring up. So Paul says, just like his resurrection, We've been planted with the expectation of coming up to new life. That new life is a permanent and dedicated life to our Savior Jesus Christ. That's the way it has to be from here on out after we're saved. Life isn't about selfishness and sin. It's about selflessness and obedience to the Lord Jesus. Jesus taught us that exact thing through His death, burial, and resurrection. So look at verses 10 and 11. For in that He died, He died unto sin once, but in that He lives, He lives unto God. Likewise, reckon you also yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So just like Jesus rose from the dead and lives in righteousness and godliness, Paul says, just like that let your baptism remind you of your old self that it has died and that person has been buried and now you are alive in a new life of righteousness and godliness as a matter of fact we looked earlier at chapter 5 verse 21 where paul talked about sin used to reign but he says in verse 12 of chapter 6 don't let sin reign right something something dramatically has changed The very act of being baptized is recognition that you are a new creature, a new creation. Baptism does not make you new, but it is how you declare to the world you are new. Now this baptism thing is something special. It isn't just a a meaningless ritual that we, we require of newly saved folks so that they can be church members. It's not because Baptists want some sacred tradition that we can say, oh, you were baptized by those people. Come on over here and we'll get it for you right. That's not the goal. But we do want to get it right. It, what it pictures is so vitally important, we're not going to change anything about it and destroy what it pictures. Getting it right is more than just making sure it's immersion underwater. It's making sure we understand what it is that baptism is all about. And let this be a challenge for each of us as a church member who is baptized as a symbol of your faith in Jesus. You are to be walking in a new life, not walking in the old one. Baptism doesn't make you righteous. Baptism doesn't make you part of the covenant of God. Baptism is, as the Apostle Peter wrote, the answer of a good conscience toward God. And no one should stand in the way of any believer whose Bible-informed and Spirit-led conscience leads them to take this step of baptism. A good conscience toward God will seek to outwardly declare your faith in the Lord Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection, by being baptized. We see that in the examples of baptisms in the New Testament. In Acts 8, the Ethiopian eunuch was reading along with Isaiah 53, and that guy was confused. But as Philip explained the message and pointed him to Christ, you know what the Ethiopian eunuch immediately wanted? Acts 8, verses 36 and 37 tell the story. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Why isn't Baptists throughout the ages have insisted on maintaining the purity of this symbolic command? It's because we have no more right to change the symbolism of baptism than we have the right to alter the message of the gospel because baptism represents the gospel. And I pray that you would understand this because there are times where someone will come to the, to the church here and say, well, we want to be part of the church and we'll talk about baptism. And they'll say, oh, well, I was baptized as an infant or I was sprinkled or, you know, they, they would say things and, and we will ask them to be baptized. I would never ask anyone to be re-baptized. But when we look at what's happened in the past and we, we say, well, was, was the authority there to do that? Did they have the purpose right? Did they have the symbolism right? Did they have the gospel right? Were you really saved when you were, before you were baptized? Was it, a, was it a, an answer of your good conscience toward God? And we simply can't recognize the baptism of any group who would baptize infants or unbelievers who or thinks baptism is part of a covenant that the act of baptism saves them because it would ruin the symbolism of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Baptism causes us to look back at the work of Jesus, how he lived perfectly died in the place of sinners was buried in the tomb and rose three days later to give eternal life to all who believe it is a symbolic retelling of his death burial and resurrection baptism also causes us to look forward to the new life of being openly identified as a disciple of jesus that the old me has been put away and i am publicly dedicated to a new life in christ If you believe in Jesus, you should be baptized and be a member of one of his churches. But obedience to Jesus does not stop with the act of baptism and joining a church. In fact, if your obedience stops there, I would go so far as to say you should not have been baptized and you should not be a member of the church. Baptism is a sign of faith In the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and it is a sign of your permanent commitment to live a new life in Him. Okay.